As with any good book or movie, you know, whenever you watch a movie, you know, most of us hate to get to that movie late, right? I mean, you don't want to step into the movie halfway through. You don't even want to step into that movie 10 minutes after it started because you're worried that you're going to miss something. You're going to miss some little detail that, that, that's going to be important for you to understand the rest of the film. Or sometimes you see a movie that you enjoy so much and you go back and watch it again and you pick up on details the second time around that you didn't pick up the first time. And sometimes those details help to just bring additional light to other things that happen in the movie. At least good movies have that, you know, where every single minute, every single line, every single, everything, everything that's scripted in that movie was scripted for a purpose to help really build up that story. Well, certainly when we come to the Word of God, the Word of God is certainly much more important than just any movie. And certainly every line that we read, every verse that we come across, every word that we see deserves our careful attention. And so this morning, as we open up the book of Ephesians, we're really just going to limit ourselves to the first two verses. This is really the opening, the, the greeting that comes from Paul. And while we can easily just read through this greeting and say, well, what else is there? Why do, why do we need to spend all this time? When we slow down and really look for the background, when we try to understand the author, when we try to understand the recipients, all these things come to play in terms of helping us to better understand God's word. In fact, uh, we have kind of a technical term that we call hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is basically the principles of Bible interpretation. And it's uh, through hermeneutics, it's through proper Bible interpretation that we can be sure that we're not taking things out of context. That we can be sure that we're not just making the word of God simply say what we want it to say rather than letting it say what it's meant to say. You know, there are so many people that may come to the word of God, they'll read the word of God and they may ask each other, well, what does this text mean to you? What does this text mean to you? How do you feel about this? Well, I don't care what it means to you. I don't care what it means to me. I only care what it means. And that's the attitude that we need to come when we have to have when we come to the text is trying to understand the word of God. Now, since this is um, our first teaching after um, the installation, after me officially becoming senior pastor here, we're opening up with Ephesians. And previously, you may remember, I did an overview of the Old Testament. And I did a little bit of a breakdown um, of those Old Testament books. Well, you'll take a moment for just, just take a moment to look at your table of contents at the New Testament. I'll give you a brief breakdown of, of what we're looking at when we talk about the New Testament books. And I'm sure a lot of this will be familiar to you, but I think this will be a good review. Uh, and, and for some of us who may not um, have had much exposure to the Word of God, this is going to be much needed. Well, when you look at the table of contents at the New Testament, what you'll see is that you have the first four books, which are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we refer to that as what? What kind of books? Gospel books. Those, those are gospel books. And specifically, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we sometimes refer to this as the synoptic gospels. And why do we say that? Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke detail a lot of the same events. You're going to get a slightly different perspective from each one of those three authors. Um, all of them are, are accurate, um, but a different perspective, seeking to fulfill a different objective in writing. Um, the fourth book is uh, the Gospel according to John. That was written much later. John would write about much different events, having known that we have these three Gospels already in place that detail a lot of those events. John chooses to bring some additional events that had not been documented. And then after that, we have the book of Acts. The book of Acts is, and really with the four gospel books, these are the five historical books of the New Testament. So if you want to know New Testament history, you read through any one of the gospel books and then you read the book of Acts. Because what the book of Acts does, it picks up from the, um, from the ascension of Jesus Christ after Jesus died, he was resurrected, he uh, came to the disciples and then he ascended up into heaven. And then the book of Acts really details how the apostles, through the work of the Holy Spirit, establish the church and the growth of the church. So you see that, and, and the book of Acts is so crucial when you start to read through the epistles. Now, what do I mean by epistles? That's a word we throw around a lot. Epistle is just another word for letter. Some of you might say, well, why don't you just say the word letter? Why do you have to say the word epistle? Well, because you're gonna read through, if you read through a lot of commentaries, if you read through a lot of biblical references, they're gonna say epistle, and I want you to get used to hearing the word epistle. So the epistles, which are letters to the church, and, and that really covers the rest of the New Testament up until Revelation, the, the epistles are basically letters. These are personal letters, either written to the church or written to individuals. Um, and, and really from the, <clears throat> from the book of Romans 
all the way to the book of Philemon, we have 13 consecutive books, all of them written by the Apostle Paul. Um, so Paul really wrote nearly half of the books of the New Testament, 13 out of 27 total. Now, the order of the books that you see from Paul, these are not in the order that they were written. In fact, what you'll find is that they really start with the largest of Paul's works, and they kind of narrow it down to some of the smaller of Paul's works until you, you get towards the end, and then you get these personal letters that he wrote to Timothy, to Titus, and, and to Philemon. And then from there, we've got the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is the one book that we're not absolutely certain who the author is, um, though we are pretty certain that this person, if not Paul, it would have been someone on Paul's apostolic team. And then you've got the book of James. Um, that's the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. You've got First and Second Peter, and then you've got First, Second, Third John. You have Jude, which uh, Terry Norse has been covering. And then you have the book of Revelation, which is like a history book, except it's a history book about the future about what's going to happen when Jesus Christ returns. So that's really the New Testament. You've got the first five books, the four Gospels and Acts, which are basically your history books. And you, you, then you've got a, a number of epistles that were written by Paul and, and other apostles or, or other associates of, of those apostles writing to the church and, and to various uh, individuals, um, followed by the book of Revelation, which comes last. Um, it's a much simpler breakdown than the, um, than the Old Testament. But for the epistles, if you're ever going to read through the epistles, especially the ones addressed to the churches, you find a lot of the background right in the book of Acts. You'll learn a lot about those epistles, about those locations, about how Paul came to minister in those areas just by reading through the book of Acts. And that provides a lot of helpful context. Well, with that, I just a brief um, Bible lesson there before we get into our message for this morning. Um, so going to the book of Ephesians, there's a very specific reason why I chose Ephesians to be the first text that we're going to walk through. Ephesians is a marvelous text um, by the Apostle Paul, and it really lays out in, in a very clear way, much more clearly than any other letter he wrote, God's vision for the church. Um, in it, we learn so much about God's plan of redemption. In fact, Ephesians consists of six chapters. You can break it up into two major sections. The first three sections is really focused on theology. And it's not just general theology. It's very specifically focused upon God's plan of redemption, his plan of salvation. And when you read through those first three verses, you will see that Paul is just bursting from the seams with praise. So unlike what some people will say, that theology doesn't matter or theology is dry and it's boring and whatnot, Paul will have none of that. Because when you read through his writings, he can't help but to praise God over and over and over again because of the theology that he understands with regards to God's redemption. And then the last three chapters are really the implications for us as Christians. So knowing all these truths about God's plan of redemption, how are we to behave? How are we to walk? I mean, turn with me real quick to chapter 4. Chapter 4, that very first command of chapter 4, that is what I would argue the central command of the entire, uh, the entire book of Ephesians. Uh, having, having shared all this, uh, God's plan of redemption and having praised it and, and just, just lavishing all, all, this, all this praise for God over these truths. He says at the start of chapter 4, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. The first three chapters describe that calling. The first three chapters helps us to understand the just wonderful blessings and riches of that calling. And the natural outcome should be that we would walk in them in a manner that is worthy of that calling. Does that make sense? I mean, this is, this is how we're to behave just in light of how God has absolutely blessed us. And so I want us to be able to go through this letter and to be able to learn from it, not only inform ourselves with the theology that should provide us with the motivation and, and the drive and the desire to glorify God, but also the, the natural implications that come out of that in terms of how we are to walk. And just as importantly, I mentioned Ephesians is a letter that lays out God's vision for the church. What you'll find in this letter is that your walk as Christians is not meant to be independent of the church. Because Paul doesn't speak or address to individual Christians. He's addressing the church. And when he talks to them how they are to walk, he's referring to them as a unity, as a whole, how they are to walk together. And so this is what I'm looking forward to in this very, very rich letter. 
And so as we go through this book, as we go through this study, and I see a lot of you already have um, notebooks and you're taking notes with things, and I, I really appreciate that. I think that's going to really help you. Now, I know some of you may learn better just by listening. You know, and if you listen, I would encourage you afterwards to write down as much as you can remember to just to help summarize um, what you're hearing. Go through it again, maybe even download the message or listen to the message online. You can't download it just yet. We're working on that, but you can always listen to the message um, online over again and, and just kind of take notes and try to help jog your memory and, and really think through how to apply these texts into your life. Now, my purpose this morning, as we take a look at these first two verses of Ephesians, is probably pretty clear. I want to provide you the context to this book of Ephesians. You know, just as I mentioned, you don't want to jump into a movie halfway. You don't want to jump into a letter without understanding the background context, without understanding who wrote it, who it's being written to. So I want to provide you the context of Ephesians so that you may better understand the theology and implications of the overall letter upon your walk. So you may better understand the theology and implications of the overall letter upon your walk. And our introduction to Ephesians will be seen here in three elements of Paul's greeting in the first two verses. Um, the, these are the three elements that we need to understand, starting with point number one, identifying the author. Identifying the author. So starting with the first part of the first verse, we read Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, that's pretty straightforward, and you might think that we really don't need to spend a whole lot more time than that. But since this is our first time going through a letter of Paul, I want to spend some time explaining who Paul is and how he got to this point and what makes him introduce himself the way that he did. So who is Paul? Well, we're first introduced to Paul by his Jewish name, which is what? Saul. You, you see him appear at the end of the book of Acts, chapter 7. Um, however, we have to go to Acts chapter 6 to see the start of what had happened there. So turn with me for a moment to the book of Acts. It's going to be a few books over to the left. Past uh, first and second, before 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you'll get to the book of Acts. Go to Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, we have a deacon by the name of Stephen. Sorry, it's before Romans. Before 1st and 2nd Corinthians, before Romans. And going to Acts chapter 6, we see that in chapter 6, verse 1, there was a dispute that arose between Jewish believers, that their widows were not being cared for. Then from verses 2 to 4 in chapter 6, we see the need for seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom to handle this task. In verse 5, we find that a man named Stephen was to be one of those men. And then in verse 8, we see that Stephen is full of grace and power and was performing great wonders and signs. And even when there were Jews who tried to argue with him in verse 9, they could not overcome his wisdom and the working of the Spirit in him in verse 10. So then from verses 11 to 14, really these Jews begin scheming against Stephen. These Jewish non-believers who were unable to overcome Stephen in these debates and in this understanding of Scripture, they began scheming against him, saying that he is blaspheming God, which leads to him being brought before the council of Jewish leaders. And if this sounds familiar, this is essentially what happened to our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the leaders schemed against Jesus Christ, brought him on trial, and basically gave him an unfair trial, falsely accused him. And that's exactly what they were seeking to do here to Stephen. It reminds me of what Jesus said in John 15, 18, that if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. But then in chapter 7, from verses 2 to 50, he speaks forth this amazing sermon, summarizing Israel's history of failures in the Old Testament. But then he concludes in verses 51 to 53. This is chapter 7, verses 51 to 53. He concludes with this stunning condemnation upon those leaders. And we read this starting in verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. That's not what I would call a seeker-sensitive message from Stephen. I mean, he's 
bringing pretty harsh condemnation. And then you see from verses 54 to 60 that the Jewish leaders are angry and they proceed to stone him to death just purely out of anger. And looking at verse 58, it's here that we're introduced to Saul. When, in verse 58, when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, not only that, but when you look at the start of chapter 8, we see this as well. Chapter 8, starting in verse 1, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout man buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. I mean, this is how we are introduced to Saul. And this is not someone that you would expect to accept Christ, would it? And it's a reminder as I'm looking at this that no one's ever outside of the reach of salvation. No one's ever outside of the reach of the gospel. So no matter who you run against, no matter how angry they seem to be, no matter how against Christ they are, no one's outside the reach of God's salvation. And and here we see when you get to chapter 9, God is going to intercede in Saul's life. And specifically, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who intercedes, who interrupts Saul. In Acts chapter 9, we see this in verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, and by the way, that's what believers were called at that point. They belong to the way. Remember, Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. They were referred to followers of the way. So if anyone be found belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? At this point, Saul is blinded and then sent into Damascus to find a disciple by the name of Ananias. This is not the same Ananias who was who was put to death by the Lord for selling his property and and lying about how much he was giving. This is a a disciple named Ananias. And when Ananias questions the Lord's selection of Paul, I mean, look at this. Ananias questions this. You know, Ananias is told by the Lord Jesus Christ, go out and seek Saul. And Ananias is like, are you sure we're talking about the same person? Uh, Do you know who we're dealing with here? I mean, look at this. In verse 13, Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name, for I will show him how much he must suffer. I'm sorry, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And then verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So there we have Jesus Christ calling, calling Saul and saying that he is my appointed man to the Gentiles. But not only just Gentiles, but we see there at, verse, at the end of verse 15, but also kings and the sons of Israel. And then verse 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. That's not necessarily a calling we hope to hear from God that he's going to show us how much we must suffer. But what's beautiful about the word of God is that we get all these letters from that exact apostle Paul. And when you read through these letters from that apostle Paul, though he has suffered much for the sake of Christ, you can't help but note how much joy he has in the Lord. And that's really a joy that we are seeking ourselves as we continue to grow together in Christ. So that's how Saul was commissioned. And really, that's how he became an apostle. And by the way, why do we call him both Saul and Paul? Why, why both names? Well, Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Roman name. He was a Roman citizen, though he was a Jew. So it makes sense that as a Pharisee, as a Jew, he was known by his Hebrew name, Saul. And it would make sense that as he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles, he starts to become known by his Roman name, Paul. 
Uh, that's why Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, he began, he began referring to him as Paul at the start of the first missionary journey. You see that in Acts 13, verse 9. Acts 13, verse 9. But going back to Paul's conversion, what we see in his life was completely and clearly an act of God. There was no altar call. Paul was not told to consider his options or asked to make a choice. And that's why when we look again at Ephesians 1.1, Paul not only identifies himself as an apostle of Christ, but look at what he has. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ by the will of God. But that leads us to another question. What is an apostle? Uh, And this is one of those words we throw around a lot, but we're not always clear on what exactly it means when, when we're asked. Well, the word apostle comes from this Greek word that sounds very similar, apostolos, meaning messenger. Um, In its verb form, when it's used as a verb, it simply means to send away with some sort of objective or or some sort of mission in mind uh, or message. Now, prophets were also called messengers of God. So what's the difference between prophets and apostles? Well, while prophets were called to bring forth revelation from God, and basically, by the way, a revelation, when I say revelation, it's basically anything that God wanted to reveal about himself or his, his will or his plan to us. Okay? A revelation is just any kind of revealing of God to, to us. So while prophets were called to bring forth revelation from God, apostles came with greater authority and much stricter requirements. They, too, would bring forth a word from God. But take a look at me. Take a look with me at the book of Acts again. Um, Let's go back to. um, So going back to Acts chapter one, look at with me at Acts chapter one. It's in Acts chapter 1 that um, Jesus appears early in the chapter. He spends time with the disciples before he ascends up into heaven. Verse 9 through 11 is when he ascends up into heaven. In verse 11, you know, there's an angel that says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. That was a promise that Jesus will return from heaven just as he went up into heaven. And then in verse 12, the disciples returned to Jerusalem to the Olivet Mount. And then in verse 14, what we find is that they're devoting themselves to prayer. When suddenly in verse 15, Peter stands up and proclaims from verses 16 to 20 that the betrayal by Judas. And of course, we know that betrayal by Judas. This betrayal by Judas, it was prophesied by God. But because Judas has been judged, because he has been killed, that still left a hole, a hole for another apostle to fill in. So they're down to 11 apostles. They, they needed to find a 12th. And then you'll see in verses 21 to 22, the unique requirements for an apostle. Acts chapter 1, verses 21 to 22, we read this. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us, accompanied us, All the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So we see immediately here as we look at this verse again, Peter says it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out, that that one of them must be appointed. One of them must be witnesses with us of his resurrection. So we see here immediately that apostles had been a very select group with a very specific time period. You see, there are many people today who actually claim to be apostles. You know, you go to churches around America and sometimes they'll refer to their own apostles. The Mormon religion has an active apostle at all times. Um, The Roman Catholic religion would argue that their pope is essentially an apostle, that there was apostolic descendancy that that led to that pope. I even met a woman once who claimed to be an apostle and and what she's called an end-time prophetess. And when questioned on something that she would say, she would warn, do not question the Lord's anointed. I know because I once received that warning from her. Of course, that claim is absolutely ridiculous. Apostles were those who were direct witnesses and personally commissioned by Jesus Christ himself. And in case you're wondering, I wasn't really bothered by the warning. Now, of course, these requirements would seem to pose a problem for Paul. 
Because Paul, as far as we know, he probably did not witness the resurrection of Christ. He wasn't there with, with the apostles. He, he was not with Jesus and the other apostles for those three years of earthly ministry. However, we are reminded that Jesus himself blinded Paul on the road to Damascus and commissioned him directly to be his apostle to the Gentiles. Remember, we had just read this, Acts 9.15, he said of Paul, He is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. So not only that, but while the disciples had three years with Jesus, there's actually good reason to believe that Paul had three years with Jesus as well, officially starting from the time that he was converted. He was not trained by any of the apostles. Turn with me to the book of Galatians. From the book of Acts, we get to Romans and then first and second Corinthians, and then you should get to Galatians right after that. Galatians chapter one. Galatians chapter one. Paul provides us a little bit of a history of his calling, of his conversion. Galatians chapter one, starting in verse 13, we read this. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism. How I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. I mean, this is an amazing testimony at this point because Paul is not just saying that he was a Pharisee. He's not just saying that he was amongst those Jewish persecutors, but he is saying that he was amongst the most zealous of that group. He was the most zealous of Pharisees. He was the most zealous of persecutors of the church. But then in verse 15, we read, But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas. That's another name for Peter, with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. So we see here that though we have a lot of details about Paul's ministry, what we find here is that even before Paul's ministry began, he went away for three years. And the assumption here is that he went away to be trained, probably directly by the Lord Jesus Christ through direct revelation from Christ. And then he came back and he started his ministry. And while Paul did not need affirmation from men, he certainly received it from none other than Peter himself. And, you know, from the gospel accounts, Peter is often the most preeminent of the disciples of Jesus Christ. He's the one that's the most outspoken. He's the one that's first to to toe the line, first to make a leap of faith. And Peter would be the one that would, in many ways, provide affirmation for Paul. And so not only did Paul spend time with Peter here after those three years, it says he spent 15 days with him. But later, after Paul's first missionary journey... He's brought before the Jerusalem council because we have these Judaizers who's, who's challenging him on, on this, this idea that Gentiles can be, can be saved without circumcision. So when you get to Acts 15, you don't have to go there, but Acts 15 is when they have to go before the Jerusalem council. And Paul provides this testimony of what has been happening with the salvation of the Gentiles he has been encountering. And it would be none other than Peter who would come to the defense of Paul. And saying, yes, I have experienced it as well through Cornelius. So Peter would end up defending Paul and defending this idea that, yes, Gentiles can be saved without any need for circumcision or any other requirements of the law. And much later, as Peter himself was facing death, he wrote the letter that we know of as Second Peter. And he would refer to Paul as our beloved brother. And he even equated Paul's writings with Scripture. You can just jot this down, 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. 2 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16. And just to further emphasize God's will in this, turn with me back to Acts chapter 22. You thought because we're in one book that you wouldn't have to flip around so much. I do apologize. Get used to it. By the way, I I would say this. um, If you don't have the order of the books memorized, Work on memorizing them. That's going to help you a lot 
as you're flipping through the scriptures. Memorize the order of the books. I would start with the New Testament and then go back and just work kind of piecemeal by piecemeal through the Old Testament, memorizing those books as well. It will help you greatly. But turn back, turning back to Acts chapter 22. At, at this point in Acts chapter 22, he's in prison and he wants to address his fellow Jews who are bringing accusations against him. And look at the testimony he gives. It's somewhat similar to what we saw in Galatians, but starting in Acts chapter 22, verse 3. Acts 22, verse 3, Paul says this. I am a Jew. Born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you are all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. But also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify from them. I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. He goes on to describe the blinding light incident that we already read through and how he was brought to Damascus to see Ananias. But look at verse 12. He says this, A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, standing near, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time, I looked up at him and he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear his utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So you get the picture. Paul takes absolutely no credit for his salvation. He takes absolutely no credit for his appointment as an apostle. His appointment as an apostle was strictly and completely by the will of God. And as we go through this letter to the Ephesians, we'll see Paul's continued emphasis upon God's sovereignty in everyone's salvation and not just his own. But we learn something else about Paul by reading the book of Ephesians, and that's his situation. You see, it's one thing to know that Paul wrote this. It's nothing to understand the situation that he was in as he was writing it. On a couple of different occasions, he mentions his imprisonment. In Ephesians, you can turn back to Ephesians. <clears throat> in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul writes, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles... By the way, you see here that it's not only the Ephesians who are being addressed, but that the Ephesians consisted mostly of Gentiles. Paul is writing to Gentiles. So he says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And then in chapter four, verse one, he says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. So right here in the book of Ephesians, you get a little bit of a hint of what he's going through. He is imprisoned. And so while Paul was on multiple occasions through his ministry imprisoned, the imprisonment here is most likely referring to the imprisonment that he faced towards the end of the book of Acts when he's under house arrest in Rome. He's under house arrest in Rome waiting to see Caesar, waiting to testify before Caesar. And it's here that he writes all these letters, not only Ephesians, but he also wrote Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. So it's good to know when you read any one of those four books, Ephesians, um, Philippians, Colossians, or Philemon, that he is writing from prison. And it's amazing because as he's writing from prison, what you see is you don't see someone who's playing the victim card. You don't see someone who's sad about his circumstances. You see someone who is rejoicing in the Lord and encouraging all of us to continue strong in the faith. And as you read those other letters, you, you will also see references to his imprisonment there as well. So for that reason, those four letters I mentioned, sometimes they're called the prison epistles, the prison letters. Now, understanding those details are important. Because as you read, you see a shining testimony, as I mentioned, of a man whose joy could not be taken away by his own circumstances. You see a man overflowing with praise for God's plan of redemption despite his imprisonment. I mean, it's one thing to be instructed and encouraged by a godly man, right? I mean, it's good to be instructed and encouraged by godly men. But to me, when that godly man is actually imprisoned for the sake of the gospel, that's living proof of just how deep his faith runs, right? 
you know, you, you live long enough and you will run into people that you were convinced were Christians and you'll watch them later on in life walk away from the faith. You know, when trials come, when certain challenges come, when things in their life don't work out, you see them walking away. But that wasn't Paul. Paul, even while he was in prison, even as he's being stoned, even as he's being shipwrecked, even as he's, he's being left for dead, whatever circumstances he was going through, he never wavered from the faith. And we all prefer to be instructed by someone who can walk the walk and not just talk the talk, right? And that's Paul. In the sovereign will of God, Paul not only talks the talk, but clearly he continues to walk the walk. But beyond our understanding of Paul as the author, it is also important to understand something about the original recipients of this letter as well. That leads us to the second element of our introduction. The first was identifying the author. The second is relating to the audience, relating to the audience. Looking at the second half of verse one, we see the intended audience. It reads to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, the word for saints comes from the Greek word hagios, which is an adjective. It's, it's really when it's used on its own, it means holy ones. It's, that's the word. It, it literally means holy. And on its own, it means holy ones. It's the same word that's used to describe the Holy Spirit, hagios. But what does holy mean? Well, the word shows up all over the place in the Bible. We hear it all the time, including the Old Testament. It literally means to be set apart. It's to be set apart or to be separated from what is common or ordinary. It denotes a special purpose before God. Obviously, God is holy, but in addition, anything and everything that God sets aside for his purpose is also deemed holy. Anything and everything that God sets aside for his purposes are also deemed holy. And as an example, the temple of God was holy. All the furnishings inside the temple were holy. The bread was holy that was, that was set there. Anything dedicate, dedicated to God or even dedicated to the priests of God in that temple, such as sacrifices, they were considered holy. But most importantly, the people of God were holy. In fact, God's stated, stated purpose for Israel, just before providing the Ten Commandments, you can write this down, Exodus 19, verse 6, Exodus 19, verse 6, God's purpose for Israel was for them to be a holy nation. And that holiness was not only in God's selection of them, that's part of it, but it's also in how he expects them to conduct themselves. Is not just in his selection, but how they are to conduct themselves. Multiple times in the book of Leviticus, God states, you shall be holy for I am holy. This is true for us. This is true for anyone who has truly confessed Christ as Lord and Savior. And if you're still in Ephesians, look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, we read this. In him you also... After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. You were sealed in him, meaning that you were sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's the idea that you've been specially marked by the Holy Spirit himself with the idea of being set apart. You're set apart from the world. You're set apart from unrepentant sinners and you are dedicated to God and his purposes. Thus, by calling us saints, Paul is essentially saying that you are all holy ones. You have been called and you have been set aside for the special purpose of God. That's what it means to be a saint, that you are saved by the blood of Christ and you are now in Christ for a specific purpose. Now, this is in stark contrast with the Roman Catholic Church. You see, in the Roman Catholic Church, we know that they don't recognize all believers as being saints. What do they do? They wait until someone has died. They'll evaluate their life and then decide, okay, we're going to appoint this person as being a saint. So it's only a subset of people, only after they've lived a certain life that, that, that lives up to these, these standards that the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church themselves have set, only then can they be anointed a saint. But this is yet another example of how the Roman Catholic Church does not follow the word of God. Because the word of God says that if you've been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a saint. You are holy ones in the Lord. Sometimes we say, I'm no saint. I'm a Christian, but I'm no saint. Well, that's not accurate. You're a Christian and you're a saint. Because that's what God calls you. You are saints. You are believers. 
So Paul is addressing saints and specifically the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, Paul's time in Ephesus was particularly long compared to all the other places he had ministered. Ephesus is a city located in Asia Minor, which today we know as modern-day Turkey. Asia Minor is modern-day Turkey. Ephesus was a highly significant city, being a port city. In fact, let me read for you this excerpt straight out of the ESV Study Bible. ESV Study Bible says this, An important port city on the west coast of Asia... Ephesus boasted the temple of Artemis, that's one of their deities, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So you hear that term, seven wonders of the world. Well, in those days, in that time, one of the seven wonders of the world was the temple of Artemis right there in Ephesus. And the ESV study Bible goes on to say, just a few decades before Paul, a man by the name of Strabo called Ephesus the greatest emporium in the province of Asia Minor. My point is this, Ephesus was a significant city. This was a city that was just sprawling with activity and with people. But interestingly, it was on Paul's second missionary journey that God actually initially prevented Paul from going into Asia Minor. He prevented Paul from visiting churches such as Ephesus. If you turn again to Acts chapter 16, or just listen to this, you don't have to turn there. Acts chapter 16, verse 6 Um, They, being Paul's apostolic team, passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So on that second missionary journey at the start, he was actually not allowed to go into that area. He was forbidden by the Holy Spirit himself. It would only be at the end of the second missionary journey, after he had spent a year and a half in Corinth, that as he's returning to Antioch, he stops into Ephesus for the first time in Acts chapter 18, verse 19. Then on his third missionary journey, he later returns to Ephesus. You see that in Acts chapter 19. He returns to Ephesus and stays there witnessing and teaching. And then in Acts chapter 20, verse 31, he addresses the elders in Ephesus before making a decision to go to Jerusalem. And we find out just how long he's been there. Let me read for you Acts chapter 20, verse 31. He says this to the elders of Ephesus. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. So this was not only a significant area in terms of its commerce, in terms of its secular importance to the world and to that region at that time, but it was a very important area to Paul himself. He ministered for three years. This is an area that Paul had spent a lot of time in. Now, it's at this point that I have to address some of the contentions that have been raised by scholars about this letter. You always have to be careful when you're reading from Bible scholars, because sometimes, in my opinion, those Bible scholars are not truly believers. They're just seeking to undermine Scripture. But as we look at the second half of Ephesians 1.1 again, we see to the saints who are at Ephesus. Now, some of the earliest manuscripts we have on the, this letter, on this letter to the Ephesians, it leaves out the reference to Ephesus. So, in other words, some of the manuscripts, they have the entire letter, but it doesn't mention Ephesus in that uh, first verse there. Now, this has led to many to suggest that this letter was a circular letter. You know, it went to Ephesus, but it also went to a bunch of churches that might have been in that um, Asian region. Now, whether that's true or not is not truly vital for us. We know for sure it went to Ephesus. We know that as a fact. And there's nothing in this letter that would have prevented it from being used in other places. I mean, surely a letter written to Ephesus could benefit churches in other areas. But more significantly, some have questioned whether Paul really wrote this letter to the Ephesians. And the reasoning goes like this. Well, because Paul has spent so much time in Ephesus, he spent three years there. You would think that when he's writing a letter to the Ephesians, that he would include some personal references. He would include some personal greetings to people that he knows in the area. He, he would show some awareness to some specific situations that are going on in Ephesus. After all, if he's this close to them, why not write more personally to them? Well, you may remember a couple of weeks ago when I preached on the word of God. You know, I said the word of God was three things. It's inerrant, it is sufficient, and it's authoritative. Well, in this way, when people make these challenges, they start to question the inerrancy of the word of God. It is certainly good to ask questions of the text. You should ask questions of the text. We need to be Bereans of the text. 
And we use the text to, to, to validate what we hear. We use the text to validate what we hear. We don't attempt to validate the text based upon our own wisdom. Okay? God's word is not under trial. It's those who preach that are under trial. It's the ones who speak forth that are to be tested by the word of God. So if the scriptures say that Paul wrote it, then guess what? Paul wrote it. And in this case, the, the reason why Paul didn't include so many personal references, that's pretty easy to explain. One of the reasons why Paul spent so much time there is because it was such a massive city. It was such a massive area. In fact, at this time when Paul is writing the letter, historians estimate that the population would have been 250,000 people. Okay, Brawley is 27,000 people. This church is even much smaller than that, and I have a hard time remembering your names, right? So, I mean, imagine writing to a bunch of churches that are spread out with 250,000 people. So, in other words, this wasn't just some house church that he was writing to. And for us, this letter is a tremendous blessing. No other letter goes into greater detail about God's vision for the church. I had mentioned that before. And the fact that Paul does not address any specific situations or issues means that for us, there is less historical and contextual details that we need to sort out before understanding and applying the text. You see, when you ever, whenever you go to one of these letters, you need to understand the situations that are going there. You need to understand why those situations came up. You need to kind of decipher all of these things before you can start to ask the question, how does this relate to me? But in the case of the book of Ephesians, there's not a whole lot of situations that we need to try to figure out. In other words, you, you can just read the letter straightforward, and it applies to us just as much as it applied to the Ephesian church thousands of years ago. And that is a rich blessing for us. And it never ceases to amaze me that Paul, who once referred to himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, the most zealous persecutor of the church, that this Paul could be writing such astounding truths about the church to none other than Gentiles. You can't make that up. There's no humanistic explanation for what has been happening to Paul and how he could arrive at this point where he's instructing these marvelous letters to Gentile believers. And remember, when you look at Ephesians 3.1, and you don't have to look there, I already read it, but he refers to them as you Gentiles. So there's no question that the majority of his listeners were indeed Gentiles. But there's one more aspect of our audience that we have to address. You see, these are not only saints in Ephesus, but Paul adds this to the end of chapter 1, verse 1, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. He says, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful... In Christ Jesus. While we often think of faithful as describing behavior, it's worth noting that the Greek word here is the same word used for believing. Okay, so in other words, these are believers. It's the same word for believers. So this is to say that the saints being addressed were also believers in Jesus Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. As believers, we are to be faithful. And as you read through the book of Ephesians, you'll see those repeated admonitions for us to be faithful, to, to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling by which we have been called. But here he is simply saying that the saints are those who are believers in Christ Jesus. But this greeting, this greeting reflects in its totality, really shows that just like those who are at Ephesus, we too are addressed by this letter because we also are saints who are believers in Christ Jesus. Amen? So we know that this letter applies to us today just as much as it applied back then to the believers in Ephesus. And now that we have talked about both the author and the audience, now we turn our attention to another overlooked aspect of this greeting, and that is the greeting itself. Leading us to our third and final element of this introduction the first was identifying the author, the second relating to the audience, the third is understanding the greeting. Understanding the greeting. Looking at verse 2, we read this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul's greeting here, this is a standard greeting in every single one of his letters. I actually looked at each one. Um, you'll find this exact phrase in every single one of his letters. And in fact, in all but two of them, you'll find them in the first three verses. You'll find them in the first three verses. It's only in the book of Romans you find it in verse 7. In the book of Titus you find it in verse 4. And when he's writing directly to Timothy, he also adds mercy. He says grace, peace, and mercy. 
um, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So while this greeting would seem very formulaic, it would seem you know, very consistent and, and easy to overlook, the fact that he uses this in all of his letters really should cause us to pause for a moment and seek to understand what he means by that greeting. Well, this greeting is actually a transformation of a common Hebrew greeting, which simply focuses upon peace. Most of you, if not all of you, have heard at one time or another the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom is a very popular way. It's a very common way for Jews to address one another. And for Paul, being a Jew, this would have been the most natural way to greet people. But the fact that he instead starts it off with grace shows intentionality on his part. It's not Paul doesn't just insert grace to be different from other Jews. Rather, it's to reflect a new theological reality in him, in his new understanding. Let me start off by explaining the word grace. This is another one of these common Christian words that we throw around quite a bit, but we don't always know exactly what it means when pressed for a definition. Simply put, grace is unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. In other words, it describes some goodness of God being received that we did not deserve. It was not earned by any means. It is a gift. There is no cost to the receiver. There is no payback required. We have received goodness that we did not earn. We don't need to pay it back. And there is no payback. There there is nothing that we did to earn it. So it's completely free. It comes from the goodness of God. And if you go back to Ephesians 1, in Ephesians 1, chapters 5 through 7, Paul writes this. And we'll look at this in more detail in, in a future week. But it says here, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. And then verse six, to the praise of the glory of his grace. What that means is that the predestination of us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ, that this was according to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely, and you see, you see that word freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So you see the riches of God, the goodness of God stems from the grace of God. Our salvation is from grace. And then if you turn to chapter 2, chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, Chapter 2, 5 through 8, Paul writes this. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. And he writes, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of of yourselves, it is the gift of God. That is grace. So in every case, you see that grace is shown through the rich, undeserved blessings of God towards believers. And it all starts with our salvation. But it continues throughout our lives, throughout all eternity. Is that any good? I mean, that's wonderful, isn't it? I mean, praise the Lord for that. But if the typical Hebrew greeting started with peace, why did Paul start instead with grace? Why not say peace to you and grace? Well, I believe Paul starts with grace because without grace, you have no peace. Now, as I mentioned, peace was a common word. It's the Hebrew word shalom, and it gets used quite often throughout the scriptures. But its meaning from the Hebrew is a lot more than what we think of as peace. When we think of peace, we often think of the absence of war, you know, that there's no fighting. Or we might think that we have, we might say that we have peace with our neighboring countries, right? Or some of us might think of peace as an absence of conflict, you know, an absence of conflict with your neighbors or your coworkers or some other acquaintances. And certainly that idea is here in the Old Testament. God did promise to Israel that if they were faithful to obey the Mosaic law, that they would have peace in the land. So it's a similar idea. You will have peace in the land. You will not be overcome by your enemies. You won't have to worry about ongoing warfare. 
But in addition, part of the law as it related to animal sacrifices, I mean, the book of Leviticus lays out several different types of animal sacrifices, but one of those types of sacrifices was called a peace offering. And they would bring it when they came to the temple of God. You see this in Leviticus 3. We're not going to turn there, but you can just write that down. Leviticus 3, the peace offering had nothing to do with any absence of warfare, but rather to honor the relationship between God and Israel. Because God told the Israelites, I will be your God and you will be my people. And the peace offering was meant to, to commemorate, to celebrate that unity between Israel and God. So peace could be used to refer to this kind of wholeness of, of a relationship with God. Once again, he was their God. They were his covenant people. It, it, this peace could also refer to success and prosperity as provided by God. It could even refer to salvation or deliverance from enemies. But when Israel went into deep rebellion against God, and you may remember some of the messages I did on the Old Testament, and I highlighted just how disobedient and rebellious Israel became. When they went into this deep rebellion against God to the point of exile, they no longer had peace with God. They were no longer honoring this covenant relationship. And as such, they were facing judgment. I'll read this for you. Just write down Jeremiah 6, 13 to 14. Jeremiah chapter 6, verses 13 to 14 reads this. For from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed, they have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. That was the condemnation upon the Old Testament Israelites when they were rebelling, when they were worshiping false gods. And certainly the Old Testament ends with a lack of peace between God and his people, Israel. But in fact, it's not just Israel who lacks peace with God, is it? I mean, all of us lack peace with God prior to knowing Jesus Christ. All of us were at one time enemies of God. But guess who it was that solved that problem and gave us peace? Let me read for you Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 reads this. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We were all enemies of God. We all lack this peace with God. But Jesus Christ, having died for our sins, when we confessed our sins, when we confessed our need for a Savior, when we confessed Jesus Christ as that Savior, we were brought into wholeness with God. We were reconciled. We had peace with God. And it's amazing just how that peace with God, it's not, you know, when we have that peace with God, it also gives us peace in life. Peace with God gives us peace in life. It's no coincidence that during the Last Supper, Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit to them. And then he followed up with this promise. You can write this down. John 14, 27. John 14, 27. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Jesus says, I give you a peace that's different from the peace that the world gives to you. And for that reason, you need not let your heart be troubled or be dismayed. So this is a supernatural peace that can only come from God. And Paul would say this in Philippians. You can write down Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Paul writes this. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension. That peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus when you're going through times of anxiety or fear or worry. But that peace with God that removes the enmity between us and that peace from God that guards our hearts and our, our minds that only comes by the grace of God through the provision of his son. 
That's why Paul does not merely say grace and peace to you. Look back at Ephesians 1 verse 2. He says grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, so often I hear Christians praying to God for more grace or more peace. Give me more grace, Lord. Give me more peace, Lord. But beloved, if you have truly confessed Jesus Christ, you already have grace and peace from the Lord. You have it. Paul's greeting here doesn't suggest that you need to get it or that you need to have more of it. But rather, it's a reminder that you are continually blessed by God with both grace and peace through God and his son. You just need to realize it. You just need to dwell upon it. You need to remind yourself daily of just how blessed you are. You know, I've been just so blessed to be able to get to know some of you better. Had an opportunity earlier this week to, to pray with one of you guys. And, um, and, and this individual came forth and was going through some trials in his life trying to figure out, should he, should he take, up, um, take up this legal case against his employer because of racial discrimination? He had a good case before him. But as we were talking about more and more, we were talking about priorities. And we were talking about the fact that, look, you know, he, he realizes he's not getting any younger. And, and, you know, at this point in life, he doesn't want to waste his time in litigation battles. And I said, you know what? What the Lord calls us to do is just continue to grow in the Lord Jesus Christ, to grow into the image of his son. And, you know, it was amazing. He left my office and he said he felt like there was a big weight lifted off my shoulders. That's what it means to have peace from God. That's what it means to recognize the grace and peace that's already been given to you. Recognize the blessings that you have through the Lord Jesus Christ. Recognize the opportunity that you have on this earth to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling by which you have been called. You have great opportunities out in the world to witness Jesus Christ to those who do not know Jesus. You have great opportunities to be witnesses before your family members who are unbelievers that when you go through difficult trials, they will see an unusual peace in your face. They will see an unusual peace in your Conduct, a peace that shows that no matter what, no one can steal the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ from me. Amen. So many of you, and I, I know that as we get older, we, we have difficulties. Our bodies don't work the way they used to. You know, I know some of you have, have advanced stages of cancer. You know, some of you are homebound. You can barely get out of the home. You know, some of you see this in, in, your, in your elders, your, your parents, as you have to take care of them. Sometimes you can't even come here to church because you've got to be out of town and be there to take care of them. You know, these things are realities. And yet, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you know what's great? We've got an eternity of a much greater existence awaiting us. I mean, think of the greatest memory you have upon this world. Think about the greatest memory you have on this earth, the, the moment that you were the happiest, the moment that you had the most joy. And let me tell you that that doesn't even come close to what we're going to experience when we're in the presence of God in heaven for all eternity. Because remember, what we enjoy in this world, this is the creation of God. But this is creation of God has been tainted by sin. There's going to come a time where we can enjoy it without that taint of sin without that struggle inside of us against sin each and every day, without seeing the effects of sin in the world that comes through just murder and theft and slander and all the vicious things that men do to each other, all the divisions that we witness amongst us. Beloved, if we remind ourselves who we are and the grace that's been given to us, we can enjoy peace in every and all circumstances. So the grace and peace we see here, it's not from the world. It's not from our friends or our family. They don't have the power to provide that. It doesn't come from chasing our dreams. Those results are going to be temporal anyway. It doesn't come from devoting ourselves to work. The demands of work never cease. It doesn't come from winning the lottery. That money doesn't follow you into the afterlife. That grace and peace comes to us from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that peace is everlasting. It's sustained through all circumstances, and it could never be taken away. That's a peace and grace. That's a grace and peace worth reminding ourselves of and worth living in. And if you hear this morning and you realize that you don't have this grace and peace, if you realize you don't have a relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ, it starts right now. It starts right now with recognizing that you indeed, at this moment, you are an enemy of God. 
But by God's goodness, he has brought you here to hear this message. He has brought you here to to call to you, call out to you, to confess your sins, to confess your need for salvation, to confess Jesus as the only one who can provide that salvation to you. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. And God now is calling everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and to confess his son as Lord and Savior. And if you are feeling this call from the Lord, if you are feeling that need to confess, don't ignore it. After the service, come talk to me or talk to one of the deacons. In fact, just for a moment, the deacons in the audience, would you stand up for a moment, deacons? And I don't even know if we have new visitors here today or not, but deacons in the audience, these are our deacons in the audience. You can talk to me, you can talk to one of these men. And if you're a woman looking for someone to to connect with, one of these deacons can connect you to a godly woman in the audience as well. We certainly want to meet with you. We want to talk to you. We want to pray with you. We want to help counsel you and disciple you. You know, those things are all very important. But don't delay this need. Don't delay that need to confess. Don't delay that need for prayer. Don't delay that need to meet with one of us. What a blessing it can be. What a blessing it can be to hear hear Paul's words and know that it applies to you too when he says, "Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ." Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful just for this rich opening. Um, from the book of Ephesians. We're so thankful that your word provides us with everything that's needed for life and godliness. We're so thankful that through your word, as we study your word, it doesn't always come easy to us, but the answers are there. As we study your word, as we seek to understand your words, as we seek to understand how you use men like Paul, as we seek to understand all that you describe within within your full counsel of God, Father, we can be blessed to know, we can be blessed to have the wisdom that leads us to salvation in your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we give thanks to you for this hour. We pray that for all of us, that in our hearts, we would continually sing our praises and worship to your son and to you. That we would recognize the grace that we've been given in salvation that we would recognize the peace that was provided through that salvation, and that we will continue to rest and rejoice in both of those realities. And I pray that for anyone here who does not know the Lord, that you're even working in their hearts right now to bring about these realities. Father, bless the rest of this day. Bless this congregation. Bless all of us as we consider what we have heard here this morning, that we would be blessed by these words. We would apply them to our lives, even through the difficulties that we go through. We would seek to share these truths with other people who need to know the Lord and that you'd be glorified in all things. And Father, we give thanks to you and we pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior and all of God's people said.